When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Friday, July 9th. I have the pleasure of being joined by Real Vision's Ash Bennington and Weston Nakamura. Today, global equities surge, especially in the U.S., with industrials, financials, and materials leading the way. Perhaps those who called the death of the reflation trade were a little bit early. Ash? Jack, I'm looking at bond markets and a new analysis of the U.S. labor market and what it means for the broader U.S. economy. Yeah, fascinating story there. Finally, the bond market rally, which lasted eight consecutive days, truly uh, incredible, is over. Uh, Bond yields had gone from 1.52 on the U.S. 10-year down to 1.27 before today, uh, surging back to 1.36. And with this, I think we have to welcome our guest, Weston Nakamura. Weston. How are you doing? How are you making sense of the uh, let up in bond yields today? Uh, hey, gentlemen, how are you doing? Thank you for having me. Um, happy Friday to you all. Um, yeah, so the well, the bond yields um, move this entire week has been pretty uh, insane. Um, and I think that it's pretty safe to say that, you know, two days ago when bond yields were just plummeting, and I'm talking about the 10-year U.S. Treasury or, you know, the longer end of the curve, um, the entire narrative shifted suddenly, you know, across the board. And then clearly, um, like, you know, in a more of a long-term way, and clearly now that things are reversing, you're not really hearing those voices anymore. So it kind of shows how quickly people are willing to, I guess, change their outlook or um, their thesis. Um you know, it was one of many takeaways from the from the week um, and what today revealed. Yeah, I've been looking at. You know, it's interesting to talk about that, Weston. You make some excellent points there. I've been thinking about a little bit of the bigger picture here before we dive uh, too deep, too fast. We don't want anyone getting the bends here today. The bottom line is, so bonds have been rallying since about April or May, depending on where on the curve you're looking. Uh, so yields are declining. 30-year U.S. Treasury now is below 2%, I think one spot, nine, eight. The 10-year is, as you say, at one spot, three, six. So global central banks continue to signal accommodation. This is despite this sort of longer-term talk about taper. Tapering would mean that bond prices would decline as central banks unwound and yields would rise. But market participants remain dovish overall in the bond market. This is global bond markets. Uh, and um, you know, 60 days or so ago, we were talking about inflation fears. Where is that gone? That is such a great point, Ash. And actually, I was reading um, Jared Dillian's newsletter today, and he had a great point on narrative. He's, uh, he writes, the narrative is changing or has changed regarding inflation. Two months ago, all we could talk about was reflation. Now, reflation is dead, and it's being driven by the bond market. How can we have inflation when tens are 1.2%? And here's the key part. Price determines the narrative not the other way around. I, yeah, when, when bond yields were high, everyone must have been worried about inflation because they were selling bonds, which are very sensitive to inflation. But now that bonds have been rallying and yields have declined, 
oh, suddenly inflation is, is not a worry. Weston, is, is there any point to this game where we, we, we bandy around the, these narratives? How can, can you make sense of this for us? Sure. I, I have a rather controversial alternate view on the, um, the, the, the Treasury yield move uh, from you know this past week. Um, if you'd like to, to hear it, I'm happy to share. Yeah, well, just before we, we share it, I want to let everyone yep. know that this, this theory was so controversial. It's kind of like dark <laughs> magic. It was actually led to Weston to uh, be kicked out of the academy. This theory on on, on U.S. ten-year yields, but uh, Weston, yeah, uh, with the caveat that this is a little bit fringe, yeah. How about you go ahead, share your theory? Okay, let me let me give the caveat first. Uh, first of all, the things that I post on the exchange or that the, that I put out there, um, I only say things in which um, I feel that there is something missed or overlooked or differentiated because I don't like to regurgitate headlines. It doesn't add any value. So, with that said. All of the reasons for, um, you know, the traditional reasons, such as, you know, treasury issuance and things like that, things that are well known, um, I'm not unaware of them. <laughs> I'm very much aware of them. Uh, th these are sort of additional sort of reasons for why a particular uh, price action move might have happened. Um, so with that said, this is my controversial view. Um, so basically, if you take a look at the 10-year treasury yield uh, from, you know, the beginning of the week, and you know, through through uh, today even, um, you'll see a precipitous drop that happened. Uh, you know, on Wednesday. Now that drop happened aggressively uh, right at U.S. cash open, and that's a very sort of aggressive and you know, sort of strange strange move, right? Like you know, you would ask people why why would why are bond yields falling like this, and then people would say. Kind of the, these very generic answers, things that we already know, like things like a treasury auction. That's literally on a schedule. That is that did not just appear out of nowhere. The uh, COVID variant did not just show up at, at you know at cash open on on uh, on Wednesday. So something happened that you know triggered a whole bunch of what it is is a short covering from hedge funds on the uh, treasury futures. Now what I believe has happened is that if you take a look at the uh, 10-year Treasury yield, and you look at AMC, uh, the you know meme stock. AMC represents meme stocks, basically. Meme stocks just had a really bad week um, from about you know Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. They just sold off. Uh, you know, AMC was down about 25%. And essentially, what I believe is that hedge funds are long memes, meme stocks after learning their lesson to you know, not be short them and to pay attention to them and to get involved with them. Hedge funds are long meme stocks, um, and AMC in particular, very heavily traded. Um, and when you saw them start to sell off, they essentially ran to the cover of safety in uh, the longer end of the treasury curve. And that's why you see a very, very close correlation between AMC shares and the 10-year US Treasury yield. Uh, in addition to that, when you saw it turn around, yesterday, uh, midday, again, what was the reason for that? Why specifically at that time did the market turn around? Well, you'll see, again, AMC uh, have a V-shaped recovery and the day up 6% um, on massive notional volume. And that coincides, once again, with uh, the, yield, um, the yield move as well. So in addition to all the reasons that we traditionally think of, uh, I believe that um, the overlooked reason is that hedge funds are involved in meme stocks. Meme stocks, um, you know, had a, a very risk-off week, and therefore you saw a flight to safety 
from both hedge funds who are involved in them and other institutional players who are not involved directly, but are watching them and fled to safety as well. I, uh, Wesley, I, I'm always amazed by your ability to find correlations and sort of turn over the stones that uh, a lot of people totally miss. I, I want to say, uh, Wesson, are you assuming that the hedge funds are long AMC? Because shorting AMC, or actually shorting the volatility of AMC, since AMC you know, made a high of, what, what, 70 or something, it's been a pretty good trade over the past month and a half. So you know, what makes you think that there aren't hedge funds who are short volatility, short AMC, who would want to buy bonds too? Uh, that's certainly possible. Um, if you're a hedge fund that is shorting AMC, I mean, I, I don't know how that's, I don't know how like any risk officer would allow that after, after January. Um, I think that there's, there are retail that shorts AMC and, and all that too. But, um, you know, what we saw after January was hedge funds, um, long short hedge funds, closing out their short positions, either if they're long, short, market neutral, or if they're just outright um, outright uh, short. And then you start seeing this whole institutional framework just kind of you know, evolve into this, you know, we have to pay attention to Wall Street bets. We have to have quants on top of that. We need to you know, re reformulate our strategy. We are going to go you know, long uh, single stock, short the index, and, and things of that nature. And um, and then I'll, I'll take you to specifically um, the beginning of uh, June is when AMC really took off. That first week of June, uh, you saw about a trillion dollars notional in AMC options trade in one week. That is a lot. That is certainly nothing to brush off. Um, yes, uh, retail. I mean, there are millions of them, and yes, they are using leveraged products like uh, you know, like options contracts representing 100 shares each. Uh, and yes, like all of that. However, one trillion notional turnover in one week. Yeah, there's hedge funds involved in that, and uh, you know, they, and simply and and fr frankly, hedge funds are not in their. This is not their realm, so they don't. They're very insecure. They don't know like exactly. They don't feel comfortable. So when they're long and then it starts selling off. I mean, it's kind of a, a last in first out portfolio sort of thing, and they're going to rush for the safety of treasuries. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. Hey, can I jump in there as well, Jack? You know, yeah. this is really interesting. I, I, as uh, as Weston mentioned, a trillion dollars uh, citing that notional amount on the derivatives on this stock. The underlying uh, market capitalization is like $24 billion. So this is completely unmoored uh, from the actual cash markets that we see uh, in the underlying equity. You know, one of the interesting things about this, it's easy to get caught up in the casino aspect of this. I was sort of chuckling when you said risk officer. I wouldn't want to have been the risk officer at Melvin Capital. Uh, but look, 
big picture here, what are these meme stocks all about, and what does it really mean for what's happening in the broader economy, and how investors or traders are looking at markets? There's a story in today's Wall Street Journal. I think it's something about uh, the meme stock fantasy uh, effect. They talk about the Tinkerbell effect, the idea that things exist because people believe they do. If you look at AMC, this was a stock in 2020 uh, that looked like it was heading for bankruptcy, obviously on the COVID lockdown. Uh, it became a meme. It's now 100 times higher than it was at its lows. The company has been able to profit from this meme mania uh, by issuing more stock. The consensus for earnings on this company, according to the Wall Street Journal article I read this morning, are now 30% lower than they were uh, 12 months ago. But how is this stock being priced? It's a terrible business. Barry Diller was out uh, over the weekend talking about how uh, this is a guy who ran two movie studios, I should add, in the, in the 90s. Uh, and he's talking about how the movie business, as we once knew it, uh, is now completely over. Uh, and the AMC is out there looking for acquisition candidates. I mean, doesn't this just seem a little bit unmoored from reality when we start thinking about the fundamentals here? Absolutely. And that's why I think that it. Uh is a good idea to short the stock if you do it in a, in a very smart way. Uh, or it, it could be a compelling reason. I think that you should never short a stock where you have uncapped exposure, where if, if it gaps from 50 to 150, you, you know, you, you go bankrupt. But I think that through, I don't know, you know, selling some call spreads, you can get exposure to uh, very richly valued parts of the uh, you know the, the the skew structure where you're not being you're, you're being paid a lot of money for something that's unlikely to happen. And you know, Ash, when I look at the chart of AMC, uh, let's take a year to date chart. I see one thing: exhaustion. One word comes to mind. I should say, and that is exhaustion. I think it uh, started at you know its peak was what 70, 74, and now it's in its 40s. And if Weston's right, and the hedge funds are getting into it, then why is the stock going down? Are are the retail people selling? I think I think you know Jim Cramer could have been onto something when he said that. All of these uh, meme stock people on Wall Street bets were uh, they were getting diverted from their interests. They were getting involved in Wish. They were getting involved in Wendy's, and you know they they really didn't have the fervent faith that you need of like oh the GameStop is is the one true faith. Um, and you know I, I would make a comparison to uh, crypto. Like I think that when people get more involved in alternative coins, and I'm not talking Ethereum here, then that sort of uh, you know weakens the faith of the of the Bitcoin, which could be which could be stronger. Uh, Ash, you have something, something to say on that? Well, I guess I would probably just say it's hard to believe that the exhibitor business, the movie theater business, uh, is something that's primed for 100x, 1,000x growth. I mean, when we talk about uh, when we talk about the digital asset markets, we talk about the crypto markets. Obviously, we know there's a great deal of risk there. Uh, it's a speculative trade, uh, but with that said. People are looking at this, thinking about where are the payment rails going to be in the future. How are uh, we going to do digital store of value? I mean, these are really big philosophical questions. I look at the movie exhibitor business, and I go, "This is something that's in in secular decline." I mean, how many twenty somethings do you know who just can't wait to go out and buy a fourteen dollars movie ticket in Manhattan? I will say, I, I was uh, at the office late last night with um, a, a colleague of ours, David. And he's a video editor, and he actually went to the movie theater that night. So they do exist. But Ash, I will totally cede your point. You're absolutely right that uh, digital assets is a huge growth market, and the movie exhibitor business is not. And I wonder to what degree uh, people can justify the valuation of AMC when its competitors, such as Cinemark and the other companies that have Cine in them, uh, are you know trading for a song. Uh, Weston, let, let's move on. I know you have a trade uh, regarding the NASDAQ, the Qs, and maybe short something else. What, what, what's going on there? Tell us about that. Sure. Um, 
it's actually not um a, particularly a, a long Nasdaq trade. Um, I was um I had to fill some big shoes also on uh on Tuesday um for the daily briefing when I um uh stepped in for Tony Greer and uh, at that time I brought up the trade idea that I've been looking at, which is um basically to short China tech given the um you know a, a lot of the activity that's happening with the Chinese government um coming down very hard on the uh on their on their tech giants um and so the idea being that you know i i personally i am not um somebody who's outright just naked shorts anything i think it's very dangerous and i don't and even if it's guaranteed uh to go down um to zero a capped upside and an unlimited downside risk reward uh is not compelling for me that said um what you can do is there is a, an ETF by Vesco who also does QQQ, and it's CQQQ, which is the Chinese, uh, it's an index of Chinese stocks. These are the very stocks that are getting hit uh, right now by China, especially, you know, even today. Um, every day you just get more and more headlines of escalating sort of tensions uh, between the United States and China, and then China within itself and on its own, you know, tech, tech industry. So you do a market neutral pair trade in which you go uh, short QQQ. And then you take those proceeds from what you receive from when you short, and then you go for the same dollar amount and you fund a long QQQ position. And that way you're market neutral. Um, you're basically your out-of-pocket cost is neutralized at zero, minus fees and all that kind of thing, and borrow. Um, and then at the same time, you're also kind of directionally, directionally neutral, right? And so and we saw a perfect example of this where market crashed yesterday. And yeah, your your long Q's position fell, but the CQQQ position fell even more, which was which would be a positive for your uh, for your short. And so this uh, pair trade actually, you know, uh, from its February bottom, um, if you were just long just the Q's, you would basically be up somewhere around eight, nine, ten percent, somewhere around there. If you were also simultaneously short CQQQ, again at zero cost. Uh, the return would be somewhere around 50, 55%, which is a massive difference um, with less volatility, with less capital outlay. Um, and it's a way to maintain upside in uh, US tech while playing the sort of uh, bigger theme of, you know, this, this Chinese regulatory um, clampdown on, on tech, on Chinese tech. You did a good job of selling that trade, Weston. I, I'm almost convinced. I will point out, though, you say that you, you worry about the dangers of uncapped exposure. And I, of course, agree. You know, I think you know, shorting something and being exposed to infinite losses is a bad proposition. But I might say that if, if you short CQQQ, the Chinese tech, and you go long QQQ, you're assuming that they have some sort of correlation whereby if if CQQ, if Chinese tech goes up 10%, then the Nasdaq will go up 8% as well. So you, you cover your losses to some degree. And I think that you know you may show me a chart of CQQ and QQQ over them, and they might exactly match. I can't tell which line is which. But if that correlation doesn't hold, then that trade will blow up in your face, especially if you get levered. And I think of um, you know uh, long-term capital management who noticed they said, hey, these. Uh, 30-year bonds, when they're issued, are trading at a premium, whereas the 29-year bonds are cheap. So I know what I'll do. I'll buy 29-year bonds, and I'll short the 30-year bonds. Oh, wait, this is a good trade. I'll lever myself up 100 times. And they make these assumptions that the, you know, the divergence can never 
go worse. So I, I think that there are some risks uh, to, to that trade. Ash, do you think I'm being unfair? Uh, I think there's risk, and 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 um, in any sort of complex trade, uh, particularly things that have the potential for unbounded upside, I would add, in the case of LTCM, uh, their hedge was they were shorting ruble, uh, and the Russian banks closed their ruble window and said, sorry, guys, can't swap out. That's why they got hammered. Their hedge blew up. Uh, very complicated position, obviously, overseas, subject to foreign jurisdiction, uh, and not a good time to be one of the two Nobel laureates at that fund. Yeah, I, I just want to be clear. Uh, by no means am I saying this is a riskless trade. There is no such thing uh, at all. Uh, the trade can blow up in a million ways. Uh, so right now, Chinese tech stocks are the cheapest tech stocks in the world. Looks like a lot of bad news is priced in. Uh, none of the bad news is priced in in the United States. And if the U.S. regulators start coming down um, and Chinese regulators have not necessarily let up, but that's already priced in, you can get your short position to rally, uh, and you can get the cues to drop, and you can get torn up in, in you know, the the other way around. Of course, there's there's that risk. Um, this is not a trade forever. This is not something that you just leave a uh, market neutral, you know, long short pair into your IRA or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but this is just um, a way in which you can look at it as enhancing um, a long sort of you know indexed uh, tech. Um, position exposure, um, or you can look at it as a way to play the downside in uh, Chinese tech without having to take single stock um, risk. Because a lot of times these, um, you know, this, these are very headline driven on a single stock basis. And so I wouldn't want to pick and choose which, you know, uh, Chinese single name to, um, to short. And, and a lot of times that you're just going to get in an indiscriminate sell from the index level anyway. So um, right. for now, this is a, something that I want to keep on. And th yeah, these are not these are not Russian G GKs. Yeah, right, right. Wesley, I've you know, speaking one, of headline driven, I know there's a story Ash has got his eye on. It's a very interesting piece from John Hilson Rath and and Sarah Camden on the on the Wall Street Journal. It's about uh, the staggering amount of job openings. Ash, can you break us break that down for us? Well, first, let me just say the one riskless trade that I have on is I'm long Weston Nakamura on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Uh, but other than that, that's, that's horrible risk. <laughs> So listen, this is a really interesting story. The story is about 9 million Americans, basically, who can't find a job, uh, while companies say that they have 9 million openings or more that they can't fill. Uh, this is an interesting situation, obviously, here. Uh, when you look at this, even from the 50,000-foot level, something seems out of balance. To bring that home, the unemployment rate, this is the U3 rate, is currently at 5.9% pre-pandemic 3.5%. So what we're seeing now is a rise in the number of people who are out of work uh, looking for jobs, and that there are these weird mismatches that exist in this market. Now, Hills and Rath and Cambon cite uh, a series of different uh, potential causes for this mismatch, workers moving, uh, a study by Zip Recruiters that states that 55% of Americans want remote work, remote work from home, uh, unemployment benefits. This is a controversial position. By and large, conservatives believe that extended unemployment benefits are contributing to these mismatches in the labor market. Liberals do not, by and large, believe that it generally breaks down along those party lines. Uh, we are seeing a, a reversal of an urbanization trend that would basically dates back to like the U.S. Revolution in the 18th century. Uh, so it's an interesting story about how people are not where the jobs are. Uh, that's the surface level story, or I should say that's the story that's best de demonstrated uh, with the data set uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, 
John Hilsenrath is certainly smarter than I am, but he's discussing this as a frictional story. I'm questioning about whether or not we may actually be seeing structural factors uh, in play here, specifically virtualization technology, uh, creating uh, environments that are very bullish uh, for uh, for earnings, for corporate growth, but are not necessarily favorable for labor. Long-term, 50-year declines that we've seen in the share of labor compensation in GDP. That number has gone uh, from about 0.65% in 2000 uh, to under 0.6% today. So this is effectively a transfer uh, from capital, uh, from labor uh, to capital in terms of the share of compensation from GDP. It's really an interesting question. It reminds me of uh, some things that Nouriel Roubini has talked about uh, with me and elsewhere, that technology is skills-biased capital-intensive and labor-saving. Technology eliminates jobs. It favors people who are educated in a way that allows them to work with the underlying technology. And it is biased in favor of companies, the Amazons of the world, uh, the Microsofts of the world, who have tremendous amounts of capital. This is something that's still very early, obviously, in the reopening trade. But the bottom line is, right now, tremendous mismatch in the labor markets and suppression from pre-pandemic levels of employment. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ash, what I hear of the amount of job openings there are and how it is very close to the number of people who are seeking work, I think that that gives uh, workers power because they have their pick of the litter, so to speak. And when I think of that, I think that they can demand higher wages. And of course, Ash, what, what does that make you think of when you hear higher wages? Well, it makes you think of inflation. But th this is the question, right? If we were talking about this earlier, the bond market simply isn't seeing it. Stock markets, you would assume, uh, at basically uh, S&P, I believe, uh, closing close to an all-time high today, if not at an all-time high, uh, pricing in uh, definitionally higher earnings. I, I don't know, man. It seems like there's a there are all these weird sort of schizophrenic underlying aspects of the broader economy and how it's being priced in capital markets. I don't think it's time to panic yet, but it is something that we should be thinking about, something we should be digging into, and I think uh, things that we should be talking about with people who are far smarter than I am on the Real Vision platform, on the labor economic side, talking about the bond market, talking about the the inflation and reflation trade. I think it's an interesting time to be watching markets. What do you think, guys? Boston? Yeah, um, that you know, that kind of reminds me of. So, I, uh, a few months ago, I um, I put up a post on the exchange um, from a piece I wrote pre-exchange days. Um, so I used to do a lot of sort of geo geopolitical risk analysis um, for hedge funds and all that. Um, but I kind of just went on a train. I wrote something. Uh, I did some research. I wrote something about basically the pre-COVID economy that everyone was, is striving for. This is you know before the virus, and everyone's saying like, oh, let's go back to um, you know February of 2020. And I just wanted to remind everyone that wasn't really you know things weren't so great for the very for the structural reasons that you had mentioned. And I did this sort of analysis on um, CEOs. Uh, who had left, um, this is in Q4 of 2019, who had left their uh, positions. 
we had more CEOs um, leaving their stepping down and leaving, you know, departures than at any other time uh, since these sort of, you know, metrics were taken um, by by a, a massive amount. And you're, what you're what you were seeing essentially was on one hand, CEOs are using their corporate treasury to buy back shares. Essentially, what they're saying is uh, our stock is undervalued here, and we believe that this is the best use of our capital. Um, and this is what we're going to. And on the other hand, they are selling shares from their own personal accounts of that same company because they're going to be stepping down. And you saw just this a record number of CEOs just kind of you know exiting um, at, because they kind of I think that because they kind of know that it's sort of the top this this worker to this employee to executive compensation ratio um, and things of that nature too. So I, I think that um, you're, you're certainly on something, but I think that those who are uh, benefiting from that system are also realizing that the pitchforks are coming and that they are essentially just, you know, trying to milk it for what it's worth now because they'll probably realize it's it's not going to be like this for, for much longer. And this has nothing to do with politics or anything like that. This is just the way that globally, uh, socially in developed markets, things are playing out. Yeah, I just I just think that uh, there's a lot. I think the reopening to, to uh, you know, uh, borrow and and uh, mend a little bit of a phrase from our CEO Rao Pal. Rao Pal said the metaverse is in its infancy. I think the reopening is its is in its infancy. I think we have a lot more travel that can happen in the U.S. and Europe and Asia. And I think that we are only at the beginning of people going back to offices. So I I think that their growth will be you know the bond market is not always right. Uh, let, let's just put the, and it could be wrong this time. Um, I want to also explore like. Yes, you know, technology uh, has been the greatest investment over the past decade um, after it was a horrible investment uh, in, from 2000 to 2007. Um, but or not horrible, but uh, it, it lagged, you know, raw, raw materials, commodities, and the like. I think that, um, you know, there is something to be said for holding, sticking with the commodity trade and thinking, hey, you know, a lot of copper is going to be used uh, in these electric vehicles that we all keep hearing about. Uh, you know, if, if flight uh, demand returns to normal, uh, oil could, you know, go up in value and it will be demanded a lot. So uh, that makes me think of, you know, I was recently spoke with Rick Rule, uh, who is the recently departed CEO of Sprott Global, the precious metals mining uh, company. And he said, Jack, uh, you know, I want to own things. I want to own things in the real world. So what I asked him is uh, basically to uh, tell me. I said, Rick, you know, you're a very successful person. Um, you're trying to probably trying to safeguard your your wealth. Um, but if you were a young person like me, if you were you know 25 year old, and I said, Rick, you know, make as much money as you can in a safe, relatively safe way in the precious metals uh, mining world. Like, what would you do? So he talked about silver miners and he gave all sorts of, of uh, stock advice because you know he's retired from Sprott. So he can he's allowed to say things that he used to not be allowed to say. So he could say, oh yeah, this company, I own it. I like it. This other one, not so much. But anyway, uh, let's, wa let's watch a clip uh, of this interview, which airs on Monday on the Essential tier. Let's take a look. Getting myself back to natural resources, a few things to remember. They're cyclical, they're capital intensive. What that means is that bear markets usher in bull markets. And the bear markets that we went through 2010 to 2018 was one for the record books, <laughs> really one for the record books. If bear markets usher in bull markets, the bear market that we went through was a Lollapalooza. Uh, and that kills supplies, uh, which is what kicks in bear markets. Remember this too. Five or six years from now, uh, in raging bull market, a bull market ushers in a bear market. So don't overstay your welcome. 
in natural resources. So bear markets create bull markets and bull markets create bear markets, Ash. Yeah, it's an interesting cyclicality trade. I want to throw it over to Weston because he has some interesting insight from being on the ground in Tokyo about what's happening with the Olympics. Right. Um, so I've been working on. Um, so I've I've written a piece um, a few weeks ago, and I'm doing a follow up. Um, but I basically have been very vocally warning about this uh, upcoming major risk that I think the media is now starting to wrap their heads around, but certainly not to the extent that they should be. The Tokyo Olympics is going to be a disaster. Uh, this is not hyperbole. This is just, I mean, you're seeing headlines come out one after another, and I just want to pound the table and make this absolutely clear. Uh, it will absolutely be a disaster. It will be a disaster long after the Olympics are done. Um, and it's strictly, it's, it's really because of, you know, it's COVID. It's COVID and the fact that they are forcing this through. Uh, there's no benefit anymore. You, you cannot, there are no fans that are allowed there. They just locked down Tokyo for past the Olympics. Um, if you are an Olympian and you have trained your entire life and you finally made it to the Olympics and then you, you know, you, you, you get your gold medal and all that and you kind of look up and you are greeted with an empty stadium or even worse, a stadium full of half empty seats with people who are not allowed to cheer and just a bunch of masked domestic Japanese people. You want to talk to your family? You have to go to your iPad uh, that your coach is holding and say hello to them. There is no point of these Olympics. Um, they're only going to cause a lot of harm, and they could potentially be another super spreader event uh, that we are forcing through. Um, so I just want to put that out there before headlines uh, start to, you know, front page headlines are, you know, this is going to be all, all that it is uh, yeah, in two weeks' time. And one thing I noticed is Marcus crashed on that news, crashed, I should say, you know, the decline of 2%, a big move down on for a day, but a crash implies something, you know, bigger over a period. But and that's the first time, Weston, that I've seen markets respond negatively to COVID news in quite some time. The, the normal thing that's been going on has been, oh, so many cases here, stock market up. So many cases here, up even higher. But um, anyway, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, we have run out of time. But uh, thank you, Weston, and thank you, Ash, for joining us. And thank you to everyone who was watching The Daily Briefing. Have a wonderful weekend. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.